Let's pause for a moment of prayer. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity that you give us to come together without fear and with safety, to come before you, to give our praise and thanksgiving, to express our love, and now we continue our act of worship as we give careful attention to the proclamation of your word. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would superintend not only its um, delivery, but also its reception. Give us open ears, give us willing hearts, uh, feed us and nourish us, and ultimately change us by our exposure to your word. We pray this for the glory of your Son, so we pray it in his name. Amen. Arrested Development is an American television sitcom uh, that was created by Michael Hurwitz, and it received a remarkable critical acclaim. It got six primetime Emmy Awards, one Golden Globe. Um, it's been named one of the greatest TV shows of all time by publications including Time, Interta Entertainment Weekly, and IGN. But curiously, in spite of all these good reviews, nobody watched the show, and so after a couple seasons it was canceled. It's got an interesting plot, though. So in the, the show, Arrested Development, the, the owner of this business, real estate business, is kind of a crooked guy, and he's been embezzling the money. So the federal government seizes all of their assets. So this family, this very dysfunctional family, who's been uh, living this very extravagant lifestyle by embezzling money, has to continue to live this extravagant lifestyle, though now they're broke. So at the center of the show is Michael Bluth, played by Jason Bateman. He's the straight man, and he's always striving to do the right thing. He's working to try to keep the family together. And he's, he's frustrated because the, the family is so materialistic, so selfish, and so manipulative. His father, the progenitor, George Bluth, the patriarch of the family, is arrested in the first episode of the first season. But in spite of being arrested, he goes to considerable lengths to try to continue to manipulate and control his family. Um, various efforts that he gets to uh, try to evade justice. Uh, so um, his wife, Michael's mother, Lucille, is ruthlessly manipulative. She's materialistic. She's hypercritical of everybody in the family, and she's constantly drunk. So the term arrested development has had multiple meanings for the last 200 years. Um, when applied to the field of medicine, arrested development can mean uh, either a stoppage of physical or mental development. In literature, um, Ernest Hemingway used the term in The Sun Also Rises, these two characters, Harvey and Cohn. Harvey tells Cohn, I've misjudged you. You're not a moron. You're just a case of arrested development. I like that. I thought that was hilarious. By the way, Bob, both of your cars have broken engines. The F1 cars. <laughs> All right. In anthropology and in sociology, um, arrested development is used to talk about a culture which has um, stopped evolving, stopped developing. They've reached some uh, sphere of, of development. Now, in our study in Acts, and we're talking about the development of the church, and it begins with Jesus' ascension, the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and Paul's three missions trips. But the question here is that Paul is about to be arrested, and if Paul is arrested, will the church's development also be arrested? 
Paul has been tireless, he's been fearless, he's been committed to his work, but that's all about to change. He's finishing up his third mission trip. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's uh, compelled by the Holy Spirit to go there, and yet when he gets there, he's arrested. In fact, for the rest of the narrative of the book of Acts, fully one-fourth of the book, uh, Luke is describing to us Paul's trip to Rome, and in that entire time, for a fourth of the book of Acts, Paul is under arrest. And so the question then remains, um, will the church's development be arrested because Paul has been arrested? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Last week we left off with Paul saying goodbye to the elders, the Ephesian elders. Um, He's met them at Miletus. I told you that Paul has been in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. First he had hoped to get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. That didn't work out because of the plot to murder Paul, so he spends Passover in Philippi. Now he's hoping to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, Penta being 50, 50 days after the Passover is Pentecost. And so he's, he's, he's still in a hurry. He wants to get to Jerusalem for the, the Pentecost. But interestingly, all along the way, all along this trip back to Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit keeps warning him what waits for him when he gets there. And through prophetic ministry, uh, the Holy Spirit is telling Paul through these different Christians that when he goes to Jerusalem, it means that he's going to suffer. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be abused. Yet Paul feels this compulsion to continue to go to Jerusalem in spite of all the warnings. And so we wonder, well, what's, what's the big deal? What, what is, why is it so important that Paul uh, gets to Jerusalem by himself? Uh, the reason is twofold. First of all, there is a, well, first of all, there's the, the offering that Paul has been collecting throughout the Gentile world. The Gentiles are collecting money, and they're sending their money with emissaries from their local churches with Paul. There's probably about nine in this troop that's going to Jerusalem. And Paul wants to present to the Jerusalem church, the mother church, this financial offering. The church has been going through a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship. They've had uh, famine there and an increased support of others. And so Paul wants to bring this financial gift with these other guys and present it to the mother church. But more importantly for Paul, there's a growing rift that's taking place within the church between the Jewish Christians who are growing more legalistic and the Gentile Christians. And Paul feels that he needs to go there and settle these things for himself. Again, he's been told, he's fully aware that in the course of obeying the Lord and going to Jerusalem, he's going to experience a lot of hardship. But he has this firm resolve to go to bring the gospel back to the mother church. He's He's been working at it Um, very hard for a number of years. And now the people that have taken this collection and the the gift that Paul is bringing are bringing back. And Paul wants to see, for those two reasons, he wants to see the gift, the collection, and the people being brought together at the same time to the the mother church. In the meantime, the the church in Jerusalem is almost entirely Jewish. and, And they're quite concerned. I mean, they're happy for the advance of the gospel to the rest of the world, but they're kind of concerned that it's becoming more and more not Jewish, and more and more, as Gentiles are being added to the faith, this whole whole concept of obeying the laws of Moses and coming to God through this 
through this covenant are, are being abandoned, and they're quite concerned about that. And that brings us now to uh, Acts 21.1. Now, for the next 16 verses, we're going to jump through them rather quickly. It's basically a trip journal. Um, remember, Paul is leaving the Ephesus the Ephesian elders from Miletus. Verse 20, chapter 21, verse 1. And, we, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So again, Paul's tearing himself away from the elders, the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and he, he's leaving there to travel by sea back to Jerusalem. But what he's doing is he's traveling along the western coast of Turkey. And so when I talk about the people from Asia, I'm not talking about our concept of East Asia. I'm talking about the Roman province of Asia, which is Turkey. So he's following along the west coast, and he's on a day cruiser, a coastal cruiser. Uh, these ships would sail during the day, they would anchor during the night. They would go from port to port and, and just travel a day's travel, staying, hugging the, the coastline. So he comes first from Miletus. He comes to, to Kos. Kos is the name of an island and the city on that island. From Kos, he goes to Rhodes. Rhodes is the name of a city on the island of Rhodes. Rhodes, by the way, was the place, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Colossus of Rhodes, spanned the entrance to the harbor. Long since gone by Paul's day, uh, an earthquake had collapsed it, but it was still an important stopping point. And then from, from Rhodes, they travel to Patera. Patera is on the southern coast of Turkey. Now here is a, is a change that Paul makes. He leaves these coastal cruisers, and from Patera, he decides he's going to make a straight shot across the Mediterranean in open water, 400 miles to, from, from Turkey, Patera, to uh, Syria. So he locates uh, a ship because of his uh, urgency to get there by Pentecost. He locates a ship to make this open water voyage, this 400-mile trip across the Mediterranean. Um, to get you an idea how big a ship these would be, this is a freighter ship that would often carry people. The ship that Paul sailed in back the same direction took 276 people on board. So we're talking about a rather large ship. So this ship will not go in to harbor every night. They will make it all the way across. They will sail uh, night and day uh, to get uh, across to Syria, a trip that normally took uh, like five days without stopping. And then Paul tells us that they sailed from Patera. They passed to the south of Cyprus, leaving it on their left. And then finally uh, got to the port of Tyre in Syria. <coughs> uh, Tyre, um, like other places, is a place where the Holy Spirit warns Paul again of the persecution that is coming once he gets to Jerusalem. Now, we're told that the people 
speaking through the Spirit warned Paul. So there's this prophetic ministry that's taking place, and the Holy Spirit is warning Paul through these people what's about to take place. But notice the Holy Spirit does not prohibit Paul from going to Jerusalem. He's warning Paul what's going to happen when he does go to Jerusalem. It's a warning, not a prohibition. But naturally, his friends are horrified by the prospects, and they are trying to dissuade Paul from going. Verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up uh, to Jerusalem. Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we would lodge. So the team continues their sea journey, eventually terminating in Caesarea. Caesarea is Jerusalem's port city, though it's 60-some miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. Um, It is the seat of the Roman government. It is the resident of the the Roman uh, governor there. Um, One of its governors, most notably, was was Pilate. Caesarea had a very mixed uh, grouping of both Jews and Gentiles, but we were told it's also the home of Philip the Evangelist. Do you remember Philip? Philip's the first guy that takes the gospel away from those who are um, purely Jews. So Philip goes to the half-breed Samaritans first. And remember, he, he witnesses there. He evangelizes to these Samaritans. And then he goes to uh, evangelize the Ethiopian eunuch. And then he travels along the, the coastline, eventually ending up here in Caesarea. Philip is one of the seven, meaning that he was one of the original deacons, one of the guys that were entrusted by the church for the uh, distribution of food to the widows. Most notably, though, Philip is called an evangelist, and he is the only one in the Bible who bears that name, Philip the evangelist. Paul tells Timothy, do the work of the evangelist, but Philip is the only one to to have this appellation evangelist. So after the uh, party has been there at Philip's house, Um, a certain prophet named Agabus comes down from Judea. Technically, Caesarea is also in Judea, but the Jews considered Caesarea to be a foreign city because the number of Gentiles that lived there and also because it housed the Roman occupation uh, forces. So um, Agabus comes, and we've met Agabus before too. Agabus is the guy who comes down and he predicts that a famine was going to take place in Judea. But interestingly, though, we have all these other prophecies. We have a prophecy by the name of guy, by the guy of the name of Judas, and another one by the name of, of Silas. This is the only one that is recorded for us verbatim. And curiously, 
Agabus comes down and he, in the style of the Old Testament prophets, he not only gives this prophecy, but he's acting it out. There's a play that goes with it. So we have a, a reenactment that's reminiscent of like Elijah to Jeroboam, and, excuse me, Ahijah to Jeroboam, and also Isaiah does this and Jeremiah does this and Ezekiel, not just giving a, a prophecy, but acting it out. So he, he acts out this prophecy, taking Paul's belt and binding his hands and said, this is how the guy who owns this belt is going to be treated. The guy who owns this belt is going to be arrested. He's going to be abused. Um, he's going to be delivered to the hands of the Gentiles. He's, he's playing out in dramatic action the warning that the Holy Spirit is giving to Paul about what ha what, what's going to happen to him, that he's going to be arrested. And of course, his friends are trying to dissuade him from risking his life. His friends hear this, as all of them had, and they're horrified by the prospects. Um, Paul's response is that he is willing to pay whatever price it takes. And he wants to be in the will of the Lord. He wants to be doing what God has assigned him to do. And so when they appeal to him, don't go, don't go. He says, what are you doing breaking my heart? Don't you realize I'm willing not only to go and be arrested, but even to die uh, for the sake of the Lord. So he's not going to be turned aside by his well-meaning friends. So the question arises at this point, why would Paul's friends try to dissuade him from doing what Paul is convinced he needs to do? And the first of the reasons is that Paul's friends are demonstrating the all-too-frequent habit that we have, too, of being too quick to tell other people what God's will is. We need to avoid speaking for God and telling other people what God wants for them in their life. It, it's what matters is what God's will is, not what we wish for them. And secondly, more to the point, uh, well-meaning believers are always trying to make God's will conform to their preconceptions. You know, if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested. If he gets arrested, he's, that's going to deprive him from doing his ministry. If Paul's not doing his ministry, how's that going to affect the church? If Paul is arrested, will the church's development be arrested? And doesn't that speak rather powerfully of our American culture? Now, Herbert Hedden says, it's no accident that at the present time, the dominant trends in psychoanalysis are the rediscovery of narcissism. Our society is marked by self-interest and egocentrism that increasingly reduces all relationships to the question, what am I getting out of it? If I'm not happy, I must not be in God's will. And God doesn't want me to suffer. God doesn't want me to experience pain. Therefore, I must not be in God's will. Oswald Chambers expresses a proper approach when he says so perfectly, to choose to suffer means there's something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Kent Hughes adds, we must not make our understanding of God's guidance conditional on our own happiness or our sense of completeness. We are not to preach because we enjoy it, but because it's God's will. We should not serve as elders or deacons because it's always fun, but because God wants us to. We should, 
um, not work with special ed in Sunday school class because it's fulfilling, though it is, but because God has led us to do so. The point here is that Paul firmly believed this is what God wanted him to do, and the Holy Spirit was telling him that not only are you constrained to go to Jerusalem, but you should expect that it's going to be costly for you to do so. And Paul was totally willing to do that because he looks clear back to the point of his conversion when, when Christ said to him, I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake, for my name. So Paul refused to be deterred from God's revealed will. Verse 17. <clears throat> and when he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. There's that we again. So Paul, Paul is with Luke, the writer of Acts, and he's with this contingent of other Gentiles. Like I said, there's probably nine of them at this time. Um, the we sections here. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So remember, this James is not uh, James of the, the gospel. This is not the brother of John. This is not James of Peter, James, and John. That James, the apostle, has been executed some years ago by Herod Agrippa. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's known as James the Just. He is the writer of the book of James. Um, Paul and James have met several times before, but what's significant about this meeting is that by this time in the evolution of the church, the two groups, the Gentile church and the Jewish church, are represented by these two men. James the Just, who writes the book of James, is the representative of the Jewish contingent of the Christian church. In fact, his book, the book of James, is written to Jewish Christians, while Paul represents the Gentile contingent of the church, and to a lesser or greater degree, every one of Paul's letters are written to Gentiles. So they, they represent um, the two evolving contingents of, of the church at that time. Now, so the, there's nothing that's specifically said about the gift that's brought at this time. However, Remember when they met last time and they gave this edict, this is what the Gentiles are supposed to do, and remember the poor, rem remember them. So Paul's actually living that out. He's remembering the poor. He's bringing back this offering, and he's bringing back with him the evidence of lives that are changed um, through these men. Verse 19. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands, the word here is myriads, you see how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, Jewish Christians we're talking about, they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, the word here is to apostatize, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, therefore, what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Again, we're talking about Jewish Christian men. Four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, 
We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. So that's just a, a repeat of what they had told Paul when he was there previously. And then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So the elders of the Jerusalem church, are, they're, they're happy about that. By the way, um, the elders here do not include Peter and John as one of the pillars of the church because by this time they had already left on their ministries. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, is assisted by other elders of the church who have become Christians um, in that time. And again, the elders are, are really stoked to hear about the great things God is doing among the Gentiles. And, um, they're, they're very happy about what's happening there, but the question that's before them is, what is Paul teaching to the Jews who become Christians in the Gentile world? What, what about the Jews in the Gentile world? Because there's a, a rumor that's been spread, it's a false rumor, that Paul has become essentially anti-Jewish, and that he's teaching Jewish people that when you become Christians to abandon the customs of Moses, abandon the covenant sign of circumcision, abandon the covenant uh, uh, activities and ceremonies. The, 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 it is falsely believed that Paul is teaching Jewish Christians that it's wrong for them to continue in the Jewish laws. Well, Paul was not opposed to Jewish Christians continuing to observe Jewish customs. Uh, that's apparent for us in Romans chapter 14, verse 4 through 6, uh, he, he's not telling them, Jewish Christians, that they can't observe these Jewish customs. But what he's telling them is that you can't be saved through those Jewish customs. You can't be made more right with God through observing these things. Well, we already know from Acts chapter 18 that Paul observed some of these Jewish customs. Remember in St. Crea, where did Paul get his hair cut? Yeah, in Sancria, and, and the reason for that is Paul was taking a vow, a purification vow, probably the Nazarite vow. So he has his head shaved at the completion of his Nazarite vow. So Paul's not opposed to Jewish Christians still practicing Jewish customs, as long as they don't think that that's what makes them right before God. So they have been told, these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, that Paul is teaching them to forsake the customs of Moses, to apostatize from his faith um, in, in God, and, and they're flabbergasted about that. Again, the issue here is not what Paul is teaching to the Gentiles, or how Gentiles are becoming saved and what they practice. The issue here is what should Jews do when they come to saving faith, and that's their concern here in Jerusalem at this, at this very moment. So the elders come up with a recommendation for Paul. The recommendation is, so that people will know that you haven't abandoned the custom of Moses, you should participate in this purification rite. Well, first of all, why should Paul participate in a purification rite? Because he has been trotting in Gentile territory. That's made him ceremonially unclean and his contact with Gentiles has made him ceremonially unclean. So it's fitting that Paul should engage in some sort of purification rite before he goes into the temple and pollutes it. But if they see 
that Paul is not only participating with these other guys, these other four Jewish Christians also taking a purification ritual, but Paul is also underwriting the expense. This would be rather expensive because it involved an animal sacrifice, that, that this is a, a meritorious act of Paul participating in this Jewish custom. And so they tell him, take these four men and uh, you, you participate with them in this purification and everyone will see that you are not opposed to Judaism, that you are not preaching that they should abandon Moses. And so Paul agrees to do this. Um, Paul has never taught that Jews should forsake Moses. He has never taught Jews that they need to abandon the covenant sign of circumcision. Uh, he has been falsely accused. So the, the, the elders uh, encourage him to do that. Once again, this has nothing to do with the Gentiles, and they reiterate that by reiterating their charge to the Gentiles. Um, their concern is not with the Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus. Their concern is what happens to Jews who come to faith in Jesus. So he agrees with their recommendation. He agrees to sponsor their, their purification. Um, but as long as they understand, of course, that this is, is, is not for atonement, because there is no sacrifice apart from the blood of Jesus that can atone for sins. But you know, there's a lot of sacrifices, including animal sacrifices, in the Jewish customs that are not for atonement. They're for purification, they're for dedication, they're for thanksgiving, and this vow is one of those. It's a, it, is, it is for dedication and for thanksgiving, it's not for atonement. I think, too, that God is being patient with the church through this transition time. We're talking right now that this is about 57 A.D. when this takes place. And within a few years, A.D. 66 to A.D. 70, the Jews will revolt against Rome. Rome will come and completely destroy Jerusalem and tear down the temple, at which time there's no more priesthood and there can be no more offerings. And because there's no temple, there's no records, there's not a person alive today that can prove they're Jewish because there's no history, there's no genealogy that precedes the destruction of, of the Jerusalem, uh, of the temple. So there's this transitionary period of time where God is, is being tolerant of them. With the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church wanes in its influence, and the Gentile church from, from Antioch and Alexandria become the more dominant, the, the mother church at this time. So they ascend to the, to the forefront. So God's being tolerant with the Jewish Christians in this transition period. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, now again, we're talking about Turkey, not Japan. So when the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. This purification process that Paul was engaged in took seven days. He had to appear in the temple twice, once on the third day, which he's already done, and then once again on the seventh day when the purification process is complete. Uh, Paul has 
almost completed the process because it's on the seventh day. He's practically completed what's required of him when this riot breaks out. Among the Jews who were there for Passover and Pentecost are some of the Jews from Ephesus, from the province of Asia, where Paul had ministered for so long. And they were restrained from attacking him there because of the legal uh, system that, which was put in place that protected him there. Not so here in Jerusalem. They are um, really torqued at Paul, and they find this is a really good opportunity to attack him. Uh, worse yet, though, these Jews from Ephesus would have recognized personally not only Paul, but his companion Trophimus from, from uh, Ephesus. And when they see Paul, and they had previously seen Trophimus there, they naturally assume that Paul has brought Trophimus with him into the temple, this court of Israel, um, thereby uh, desecrating this holy place. This is a pretty serious charge because that is a capital offense. Now, Gentiles could come to Jerusalem and they could come to the court of the Gentiles, this outer area uh, of, around the, the temple, but they were forbidden to go any further. They couldn't go into the court of Israel. They couldn't go into the court of the women. And there were posters stationed all over the place warning you that if you came through, if you came past this marker, if you came through this gate, you did so on peril of death. In fact, the Romans were so conciliatory of the Jews on this one particular issue that they granted the Jews the right to execute anyone, including a Roman citizen, who transgressed this, who passed through one of these checkpoints. In fact, two of these um, signs have been found, one in 1871 and one in 1935. They were written both in Latin and Greek. The text says, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will, build, will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. So had Paul actually brought a Gentile into the court of Israel, this would indeed have been a very serious charge, a most serious crime against the Jewish law. So there's this, this riot that, that breaks out. The crowd that's there in the court of Israel sees Paul there, and they, they jump on him, and they drag him out of the court of Israel through the gates that separate the court of Israel from the court of the Gentiles, and there they're going to beat him to death. Now, here's an interesting thing here. I may be making too much of it, but Luke tells us, and the gates of the sanctuary were closed. So you have the temple police physically closing the gates of the temple because of one, to keep defilement out, and two, because there's going to be a capital, there's going to be an execution here. They don't want death, the execution of someone to further defile the courts. And so they, Luke tells us that they closed the gates. But I wonder if Luke is not giving us a theological hint here. Because there's a picture, there's a play, there's an act here that's taking place where Israel is closing its doors to the messenger and the message of the gospel. And there's this final closing, there's this final shutting, there's this final casting out and barring from. And I wonder if that's what Luke is now reminding us, that now with this rejection of the gospel and of the, the messenger, now Israel is ripe for its destruction, as Jesus had predicted these many years before. Remember, Paul had written in uh, Philippians 
I desire to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, becoming like Him in His death. So he wants to understand the suffering of, of, of Jesus, and he wants to identify with Jesus through this suffering, and he's about to get his wish because they grab him, they drag him out, and they start to beat him to death. Verse 31. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he couldn't learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So here's the picture. You have at the temple these courts, these, 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 these courtyards around the temple. But on the edge of the, the temple mount is the Antonian fortress. This was a large Roman Garrison. It housed at least 1,000 people, an entire cohort. A cohort is one-sixth of a legion. And in this fortress, the Antonian fortress, they had lookout towers. They were constantly vigilant for riots to break out. And from that location, they could look down onto the courtyards. That's where religious zealotism is, is, is going to is going to rise up from. So they're constantly watching, but especially at these religious times, the times of Pentecost, the times of Passover. So they're watching for these nationalistic outrises. And it wouldn't have taken long for the sentries looking down on the, the courtyard to see this mob riot breaking out. And the sentry would certainly have immediately reported to his superiors about this riot that's taking place. And we're told all Jerusalem was in confusion. The commander here is known as Achilliarchus, as in 1,000, a ruler of 1,000. He rules over the cohort. And we're told that his name is Claudius Lysias. So he's ruling over this 1,000-men army in the Antonian fortress stationed at Jerusalem. He is the ranking Roman official. He is the highest official in charge of keeping order ensuring the Pax Romana whenever the governor is not there, which basically is always, because the governor's quarters are down in Caesarea, not in Jerusalem. So Lysias is keenly concerned with keeping the peace, maintaining order and, and quelling any uprising within Jerusalem. He receives this report that there's this riot taking place. Lysias acts very quickly, decisively to quell the riot. So he takes soldiers. Luke uses the plural centurions, so he's probably taking a very strong force of at least 200 men. Now, these guys run down the steps because the Antonian fortress is separated only by a few steps to the court of the Gentiles. They run down the steps. The centurions, the, the, the uh, commander, the tribune, the Chiliarchus, the, uh, Lysias himself, comes down with this massive show of force. And instantly, of course, uh, with this massive show of force, the, the crowd stops beating up Paul because they don't want to be arrested themselves. So they, they, they break off the attack. And Paul is evidently the ob object of this 
riot. He's the cause of the disturbance. He must have done something very serious to get all these Jews so lit about it. And so Lysias uh, begins to question, what's all the hubbub about? And he can't get a straight answer, so he has Paul arrested. He asks what he's done. Some say this one thing, some say another. He can't get a clear answer, so he decides to take Paul back to the Antonian fortress where he will be questioned. In other words, he'll be tortured to extract, an ex, uh, to extract a confession. So he's going to find, get to the bottom of this. The soldiers begin escorting Paul. Now, I remind, remind you at this point, they don't know who he is. They don't know what Paul's citizenship is. They don't know anything about him except he's the object of this riot. And they're starting to drag him back to the, the, uh, the Antonian fortress. But the mob is just going nuts, and they're, they're chasing the, this guard unit of more than 200 soldiers. You, you got, this seems kind of mindless at this point, but they're shouting away with him, not meaning get him away. They don't mean take him out. They mean kill him, take him out. That's what they're, they're, they're calling for, away with him, kill him. Isn't it interesting that even in imminent danger, even in the middle of this mob riot, even when things are totally out of control, God is in control. And God still remains sovereign. And even though Paul's own people have rejected him, like God's own people rejected him, like Christ's own people rejected him, even though there's this mob of violence, God remains ultimately sovereignly in control. He overrules the plans and designs of men. And here he is interceding once again into both natural and human events. Rejected by his countrymen, God will use the Gentiles to protect his man, to protect Paul. And interestingly, it is a consequence of this arrest that Paul is given the unusual platform to speak to the most hostile audiences in the world as a, as a consequence of this, this arrest. And given an all-expense-paid Mediterranean cruise to Rome, complete with personal bodyguards. God protects Paul. God can protect you, too. God loved Paul, and he loves you just as much as he loved Paul. You can, you can trust him, even when the odds seem overwhelmingly against you. See, Paul knew that going to Jerusalem was going to be a difficult struggle. He knew when he got there it meant for him rejection and anger and violence and persecution and arrest. That's exactly what it meant to Jesus too. And as Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, Paul sets his face to go to Jerusalem. As Jesus realizes that doing so means suffering, Paul also sets his face on Jerusalem realizing that it's going to be suffering. But he considers it an honor to endure hardship for Christ. He considers it a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. And in spite of the circumstances that surely awaited him, he's really confident at this point that this is God's plan. This is where God wants him to be. He's determined that in spite of being arrested and abused, he's going to follow this course. You know why? because Paul has already been arrested. He was arrested by Jesus Christ. He was arrested at that time when, when Christ grabbed his attention on the way to Damascus. He was already an arrested man. He considered this cause not only a cause worth dying for, but a cause worth living for. 
He understood that. He understood that going to Jerusalem meant that he would suffer. You know what? If it's your goal to avoid suffering, you will also avoid Jerusalem. And if it's your understanding that God doesn't want your loved ones to suffer, you will take every opportunity to tell them that it's not God's will for them to suffer. You will, you will tell them, by all means, escape from suffering. How many times have I sat with people who have been told by well-meaning Christian friends that God does not want you to suffer, and that if you're suffering, it means you're out of God's will? Christian woman finds herself in a very painful marriage relationship, and the Christian friend will give her the counsel by saying, I wouldn't put up with that. You're entitled to be happy. See, a counsel like that assumes three things. It assumes, first of all, that God cannot change people's lives, that he cannot heal broken marriages. And secondly, it assumes that the primary goal that God has for you in life is for you to be happy and pain-free. The reality is we live in a fallen world, one which all creation suffers and groans. But third, such counsel assumes that God is not in control. It assumes that God does not send suffering into our lives. The truth is that God often uses suffering. It is often God's best purpose for you because of his immense love for you to refine you through suffering. 2 Corinthians 1.3, blessed is the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we may be able to comfort those experiencing any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow towards us, so also our comfort through Christ overflows to you. But if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort that you experience in your patience enduring of the same sufferings that we also suffer. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. I like that phrase. Our light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, because we are not looking at that which can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Again, Paul knew going to Jerusalem meant he was going to suffer. And God told him that many times. God was preparing him for what lay ahead, not so that he could avoid it, but so that he could steal himself for that moment. So Paul knew going to Jerusalem meant that he would suffer, but he was totally willing, joyful to endure that suffering if it brought glory to his Lord and Savior. You know, the book of Acts is really strong on this whole subject of the sovereignty of God, that God sovereignly works in salvation. So we have this, you know, we ended Matthew with the Great Commission with Matthew 28. And we begin the book of Acts, Acts 1-8, again, with this reiteration of the Great Commission. And God is sovereignly superintending the fulfilling of that Great Commission. The harder the enemy works, 
to frustrate, to oppose the gospel, the more effective it is. Because the, the gospel, salvation, is the work of God. You know, we see on various occasions uh, God's messengers getting into trouble. Sometimes God rescues them. He delivers them from jail. He rescues them from death. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes God is brought honor and glory through the martyrdom of his messengers. God's using death and martyrdom to advance the gospel. And Paul knew that God could rescue him from death, but he also was assured that God might use his suffering and his death to bring him glory. So when you take all these things together, it's fairly easy to see why Paul would recognize that going to Jerusalem, why his friends would want him to avoid it, but why God would want it for him. And so he was willing to endure that, recognizing that it's part of God's will and plan for him. I think a lot of the times, you know, we're wondering, you know, how do I discern the will of God for my life? The reality is it's a whole lot easier to discern the will of God than to do the will of God. And that really ought to be the question we're asking. Once we know what God's will is, are you willing to do it? It's God's will in this case for Paul to face this opposition and this imprisonment. And he told him that was so. And the question is, will Paul persist on this path that God has placed him on, even when doing so will involve suffering and sacrifice and pain? You know, it's through trials and hardship and pain and suffering that the Holy Spirit develops in us Christ-likeness. It's not through your giddy blessings. It's through suffering that God develops Christ-likeness in you. And it's through suffering that God is developing you in endurance. And it's through the way that we suffer that presents a very powerful testimony to other Christians of God's love and His, His purposes and His care for us. It is also a powerful testimony to the outside world because they want to see how does a Christian suffer. And if we consistently avoid suffering, then we will undoubtedly suffer from arrested development. Let's pray. Lord God, teach us to be mature Christians. Lead us away from this stupid giddiness of American triumphalism. It says that we should never suffer, we should never be deprived, we should always have everything that we want. Rather, make us mature in our understanding and welcome the hard course that you set before us. I pray for the Christians in this church that we are always willing to take up our cross daily and follow after Jesus Christ, even if that means hardship and suffering. If it is your will for us, it is not too much for us to ask, to be asked of us. But use us and find us faithful and mature us in our understanding of this. And let the will of God be our directive, not our own will. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.